Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. We are in 1 John. This is our third message from that series. And in the first two parts, you may have noticed John writes in a little bit of a weird way, right? Uh, not the way that we normally process information is what we see from him. Uh, John writes... Uh, in what's called a, a circular fashion. So we're used to processing information that A leads to B, which then in turn you process that and it kind of leads to C. Our minds process information that way. It's kind of the, the natural path that we go. Uh, John doesn't do that. John will look at kind of angle A uh, of a certain thing and he'll talk about it over and over and over and over again, circling around it. And then he'll move to to, to angle B, and he'll do that one again, B, 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 and then C, 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 and then he's going to flip all the way back to A. So he's going to just kind of circle these topics, move to the next, and then circle all the way back. And his repetition in this is really uh, intentional. He wants us to sit in the tension uh, in the uncomfortability and in the grace of these things and not let us kind of slip out. So he'll just sit there, uh, even to the point where it can get maybe just a tad bit uncomfortable. But he does that out of love for us so that we don't miss the point. The, the first three sections, so the last two messages, and today, a, a theologian remarked, and I thought it was kind of helpful, he says, these sections have three broad tests in them for us. Uh, the first test in the first sermon was a theological test that is presented in uh, the, the text, do you believe, this is the, the test, do you believe that Jesus is the truth, the Son of God? That is the test. Do you believe that he is the way to eternal life? Uh, do you believe that he is the only way to the Father? Or have you invented a new theology, a, a new truth outside of Jesus, and you've overruled the words and the truth and the reign of God to insert your own theological ideas? Theological test is the beginning. Do you believe Jesus is the truth? Then after that, he moved to a moral test. This was last week, just very simply, do you follow the commands of God? Do you repent and believe? Which is just a simple call that should be the pattern for all of our lives. It's not the anomaly. It's kind of like the Monday and the Tuesday and the Wednesday, this pattern of, of man, I need to believe more and walk out of that. Do you follow the commands of God? Or have you determined what is right in your own eyes and you live that out? Because John's message is in this text, you cannot love God and ignore his commands. It just simply doesn't work that way. No matter how loudly you proclaim that you can, you cannot. You cannot disobey the Father and call him your Father. And the third test we find ourselves in today is a social or relational test. Do you love the brothers and sisters in Christ around you? And he's just going to let us sit in it for a really long time. Like tangibly, does the love of Christ manifest itself in the love and the way that you treat the other people around you? Or is there this disconnect in how Christ loves you and the way that you love the people around you? Do you actively love your church family or not? These tests, especially if you're a poor test taker or a test hater, uh, historically, you need to understand that these more are more of a litmus test than a driver's exam. Uh, meaning that these are to help us, they're to give us critical feedback, they're to give us markers to understand and healthily gauge where we are. John puts this in place to help us see if we're walking in the light or if we are not. 
Even more, these tests are gatekeepers for our joy. If just we would understand that God never wants to steal your joy from you, he wants to complete it in you. So these are our ways to defend your joy as John is opening them up. There's a progression that's kind of built, and and this is what he's done. Uh, The drive has been truth, the truth that is in Jesus is the way to eternal life. There is no other way to get there. It is the only way, and the Bible describes eternal life as fellowship, relationship with God, Jesus, and fellow believers. This is eternal life, and John says that is where your joy comes from and is complete. Truth leads to fellowship, and fellowship leads to joy. Then section two, John warns your sin will destroy your fellowship with God, and with, with each other, it will destroy that. Sin is not a personal choice. It's not isolated into to just your thing. We have this idea in culture that it's my sin, and it's my thing, and it's my way. No, it's not, because our decisions pour into the way that we relate to each other. John's just warning us, be careful, because if you walk in your sin, you will break down relationship, and thereby you will take your own joy away from you. So he offers these words of kindness, repent. Run back to God where you've ran away to restore fellowship with him and restore fellowship with others. This is just a kind father saying, come back to the light. Not, not I'm trying to crush you or do this or else. It's you're running away from joy. Turn the other way back to the father. And in this section today, John will show us that a lack of real love, of Jesus modeling, self-denying, Christ-motivated love for other believers will totally destroy fellowship amongst each other. Just at a heart level, we know that to be true, right? We know when we've loved each other well, and we know that when our relationships are broken, and we know the tension of what that does and how that even affects the way that we look at each other and how we even come to church or relate to God. It will erode and destroy your joy and mine if we don't love each other well. Every turn of the way have been tests not to fail you, not to hurt you, but to help you and to help me to make sure that your joy is safe and strong. Here's the text that we'll read for today. 1 John 2, 7 through 17. Now, the the way that this is broken down, because he writes in circles, you may think, again, that he's linearly changing ideas. He's not. This is all about love. He's going to tackle it from three different views. The first part's going to be kind of the, the initial call to, to love and walk in the light. The second part is going to be these kind of uh, inspirational things for us to think of depending on our level of maturity so that we can love. And, and the last thing in verse 15 through 17 is going to be something to watch out for because it'll steal your love. All of it is about love for each other. None of it changes. Uh, None of it is him getting ADD or anything like that. So it starts off like this. Beloved, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, and in you, because the darkness is passing in the way, away and the true light is already shining. Here it is in verse 9. We'll really start making sure that we understand what he's saying. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Verse 15 through 17, and still this is going to be about our love for each other. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. As you can probably see, this is going to be a call to love the brothers. This is what he says. By brothers, he means believers. This is not just guys. This is brothers and sisters, people of the light, people who are following God, people who are saved. When the Bible talks about love or care for people who are unbelievers, what they'll do is they'll switch metaphors. They won't say brother and sister. They will say neighbor, right? Good Samaritan, who's my neighbor? Gotcha, it's everyone. This isn't about the neighbor. Or the Bible will zoom out and talk about the world when it's talking about believers and unbelievers. But this text isn't about how you love everyone in the world around you. This is about the family of God, brothers and sisters. This text is about that. How are we loving and in relationship with our fellow believers? This is what John has on his mind, and he will not let us get away from it. Now, because John is talking about loving brothers here, the the church, it does not mean that the Bible doesn't care about how we treat unbelievers. The Bible has a ton to say about that. That's just not the topic at hand. I hope that we can get that. And, And that makes sense because this book has been about fellowship, fellowship with God, fellowship with Jesus, and fellowship with fellow believers. So in this love, he's guarding the fellowship with each other. We could spend all day simply talking about John's opening word. He opens by saying what what we maybe just pass by. What does he say? Beloved. Everything is like, hear this, beloved, slow down. Beloved. This isn't a sweet opening salutation. John says it this way on purpose to remind you and me, brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, of our identity as believers, you are beloved. Beloved church, hear this. We aren't those with a primary identity of being a slave. We aren't those with a primary identity of being a servant to God. We aren't those uh, with a primary identity of being a sinner anymore. We are not aliens. We are not enemies. We're not even just cohabitants that God lets hang out in his kingdom. We are, if we are in Christ, first and foremost, beloved. Do you feel that way this morning, though? What does beloved mean? Adored, cherished, treasured. Pretty much when, when loved isn't enough, 
you, you bump up to say, beloved, much loved. You are in Christ, much loved by God. This is our position. This is our standing. This is who we are because of the truth that has brought the light to open our eyes and walk us into fellowship with God. That means you do not cross your fingers and hope that you are loved. You don't sit up at night and wonder, did I go too far to the point where he kicks me out now? We are those who wade in the endless depth of God's love through Jesus because we've been brought into light by Jesus. Check out this verse and I hope it just washes over your heart in a way that, that you don't let it go even this week. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. What if we believe that when we sang? This is for the brothers and sisters. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. He isn't gone. He didn't run away from you. He doesn't have better things to do. He is in your midst, and the mighty one, he is who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. This is God. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with his love, your anxiety, your fear, your control issues with his love. And then check this. He will exult over you with loud singing. What's the picture that you get in your head when someone's singing loud? Like in the shower, in the car, are they angry? No, they're smiling. There's joy there. This is what the text says. Your God, who you are in fellowship with through the finished worth of Christ, he sings over you loudly. The God of the universe sings over you loudly with gladness. Friends, we don't tend to believe that, though, do we? We tend to worry at times, at least I do, that God's disappointed or if he puts up with us, or if he just kind of endures us, or, 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 or maybe we'll work hard to one day fall into his love, and all of those are heresies. The text says that's an illusion from the enemy. You're sung over loudly by the God of gladness who loves you. This is your identity. And do you need to worry over this love? No. The text says he's sure to save. This love will never cease, it will never fade, it will never be stolen, it will never be taken away. No pandemic is going to kill it. This love will last forever. He loves you deeply. Everyone's searching for your truth. If you're in Christ, that is your only truth. Now hear this, too. It's not the world's truth, though. Everyone wants to universalize God's love. It's not that way. It's not everyone's truth. It's yours if you are in Christ. In the world's, it can be theirs if they're in Christ, but if they're not, it's not theirs. Why does John say this, and why am I pressing so hard on it? Because being called to love deeply when you feel unloved will be horrific. Unimaginably heavy. A burden that you will run from Every step of the way. It'll feel like a chore. Not eternal life stuff, not blessing stuff. You cannot pour out love if you haven't first been filled up by the love of Christ. So John starts this test out by proclaiming to you and me who we are. Beloved. Beloved, hey, know who you are. And John's saying, remember that as we begin talking about love you're the loved one who's then called to love through the love you've been given. 
He says, I'm not going to open up to you a new command. Instead, I'm going to remind you an old command, something familiar, because this command has been here since the beginning of God's people. And he's saying this on purpose. If you've been with us, the Gnostics, the group of people, they're gushing over and super excited and high-fiving each other over new revelation and new ideas and new commands and new thoughts and new ways to live. They want to stir each other up to rush in to live out modern truths and modern ways. And John says, I'm not playing that. I'm bringing you back to the old stuff, to the command that's been here, to the command that shouldn't surprise you, the command to love. Then John adds something that seems a bit surprising. He says, yes, I'm going to give you this old command, but here, I'll do it this way. I'm going to give it to you and make a new command out of it. I'm going to make it new by giving it all over again. The command to love your, your brothers and, and sisters, I'm giving it to you again. The reason that he says that he's giving this old command as a new command is simply this. Now we per- have the perfect example of Jesus to view. And now through the Holy Spirit, we can feel the love of Jesus literally walking with us. So the command to love is, is brand new because you've seen the love and you experience the love. So you know what it looks like to give it to other people now. It's a new way because you have a gauge. If that doesn't make sense, imagine being a follower in the Old Testament trying to figure out what does loving well look like. It would be difficult at times without a good model to go off, and without sensing through the Spirit the regular love of Jesus. John says, now you have Christ, and we can look at his love towards us, and now as the darkness is passing away and the light starts to shine, we can model the love that we see and we feel to those around us. Through the love that we are given, we can love others well. Just as a side note and a pause, Perfect love of Jesus felt by us and applied to others. Sounds like a pretty great community. Is it what we're in right now? Probably not. That's why he's dealing with this. We have to first experience the love of God in order to share it. One of the lines that I found while reading this section that impacted me is this, Jesus' message was inclusive or was exclusive. Narrow is the gate that leads to salvation. Are there many ways, Jesus? No, narrow is the gate. One way. His love, especially for the brothers and sisters, is radically inclusive. He loved powerfully, directly, and widely. Those who had a little and those who had a lot. Those who he had things in common with and those he had nothing in common with. His love was wide and inclusive that way. This is the call, friends, to be the true light shining into the darkness, is to be those who love like Jesus ferociously, intently, and widely. We need to make sure and understand love as they use it in this text is a verb. It's not a feeling it's not assumed, it's an action. It's intentional. Then John shifts into the meat of the point of this section. Whoever says that he is light and hates his brother still is in the darkness. That is, whoever says that they are in God, in Jesus, knowing and following the truth, and, and yet maintains a posture of hate towards his brother or sister is still in the dark. They are those who lack love and are deceived about how they are living. He doubles down in verse 11 saying, whoever hates his brother is in darkness and they walk in darkness. Remember from last week, to walk in something is to make it your MO, your pattern, your way of life. 
The one who hates his brother and walks in that hatred is in the dark and lost. They literally do not know where they're going. The illusion is like someone stumbling around in a pitch black room with no sense of where they're going or what they're doing. They have no idea of what's happening because of the darkness. They're blinded and they're lost. The sin of hate has blinded. people of God who are supposed to be in the light, is what John's saying. To make sure we're grasping what he's saying here, to hate someone isn't just to do something bad, to hate another brother or sister. People who say they're in fellowship with God while hating their brothers or sisters, they're out now at this dangerous spot of a complete lack of self-awareness. You literally don't know who you are or what you're doing. You have lost all perception, all gauge, all life, all calling of who Jesus is, who you are, and what you are meant to do. This is a danger sign. Be careful if you claim to follow God and hate someone in the family of God, because if that's happening, something is really wrong and you're in the dark. On the flip side in verse 10, John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. They aren't just doing something nice here or there. They are living in, walking in, making it their life and their identity to be one in the light of Christ. And in uh, him, there is no cause for stumbling. So if you are loved ferociously and intently and selflessly by a person, where are your angles to get angry and hate God through that? Right, Garrett loves me well, cares for me well, cares for my soul and my family in showing the love of Jesus to me. How do I get mad at that? There's no way in. But when I hate someone, there are many stumbling blocks for our relationship and their relationship with God. That's what he's saying here, and we can feel that. When you love ferociously, there's no stumbling block. Just safe passage and beauty and safety and peace. Now ask yourself, little chicken and the egg style, what comes first, loving or walking in the light? Meaning, do we love well, and then Jesus lets us walk in the light as a reward for our good earned love giving? Or do we walk in the light of Jesus in fellowship with him, abiding in him, and out of that way of connecting with his eternal love, we begin to love others well? It's the second one. We don't love on our own. We don't love by ourselves. We can only love in the love of Christ those around us when we are basking in the love of Christ regularly. Make sure I didn't mess that up. You can't love other people if you're not feeling the love of Jesus. You just simply can't. That's why our distraction lately is so dangerous because you can't love anyone when you're distracted. You can't. And we need to be really clear about this. Love is really, really, really hard. Don't over-romanticize it to, to a way that, 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 that makes love easy and cheap and automatic. If you think you're loving and giving love is easy, cheap, and automatic, you're not actually loving. You don't know who you are. Love is difficult. Why? Because it takes sacrifice. It takes work. Love is weighty because it's relentless. Love will lead you into pain sometimes, and it'll leave you vulnerable. Loving like Christ will push you out of your preference fairly often, because I would rather do this, but to love you well, I need to do that instead. That's called a choice. 
Here's the other part. Loving will wound you at times. Why? Because you will love like Christ, and sometimes people won't love you back. This is why John says, those who love out of necessity and identity are those abiding and living in and remaining in the light of Jesus. You have to stay in that light or else you can't love. What does that mean? This means if you're noticing that you aren't loving your fellow believers, your brothers and your sisters, well, if you're noticing just in your heart, maybe at a deep level or an overt level, and it's just really clear that you're becoming callous or cold or maybe just indifferent and disconnected, and that disconnection is going further and further and further away. The first step isn't to try harder to be loving and super kind and invite people over and make them good dinner and reestablish your love for them by work. The first step is to run as hard as you can back to God. Because most likely what you and I will notice is our lack of love runs parallel with a lack of fellowship with Jesus. They go together. You're loving Jesus well, you'll end up loving people well. You're not loving people well, I can tell you, for you and for me, that probably means I'm not looking at the love of Christ. Guys, there's so much searching our heart is doing right now. For joy and contentment and loving other people, we will never love love like Jesus without walking with him. You will never feel the love of Jesus without walking with him. What does that mean? It means personal discipline. It means opening the word and saying, I can't feel your love right now. God, will you show it to me in these pages because they're all over it? It means sitting. It's one of the hardest things for me, sitting in silence. It means praying. It's why we play worship music. It's, it, that's where you fight to feel the love of God because you're singing with your mouth the things that are true. You will never feel the love of Jesus unless you contend to be in his love, though. And the author shifts to very specific and personal statements. So as he's talking about little children, fathers, and young men, he, he's meaning a metaphor for age of maturity in your faith for men and women, right? So, so little children would be very young believers or immature believers. Fathers, they're more seasoned. They've been in the game for a while. It's not just that they're old, it's that they're mature, in the, the inference in the young men is kind of the, the, that healthy level of angst. You're not a baby anymore. You're not mature, so you pop off at the mouth, but you want to get stuff done. These are kind of the tears that he's talking. He says this to them, and, and he's doing it in reference to help them be able to love little children, as in those younger in the faith. Remember this, your sins are forgiven. What's one of the most difficult things to believe when you come to Christ? Am I really clean? John's saying you don't have to hope that you're forgiven. You're fully forgiven now. Take that reality, that full spot of peace. You're fully forgiven by the full work of Jesus. Take that spot of peace, exhale, and go love other people. Fathers. Men and women more mature in the faith. You've grown up a little bit. What the propensity is, is when you begin to mature, you begin to know that you don't know everything. You begin to see 
Like the holes in your sanctification more and more and more. And John's saying, okay, here, I know that you're, you're keenly aware of your faults and the things that you don't know, but God has blessed you with knowing him. He's made himself known. So stop fixating on the things that you don't know and understand that you do know the ultimate thing that you need to know, which is the Father. Take that, let that secure you and go love other people through it. Young men, you've overcome the evil one. The ultimate battle of your life, you're victorious in through Jesus. What does this mean? Young men and women, it means that you don't have to fight so hard to win. You don't have to challenge so many people or square off or get your way or exert your influence or, or form your place. Instead, let the love of God wash over you as you see the victory that he won for you. Each age of maturity is just speaking into a baseline struggle that we have going, here's how the love of Jesus and the victory of Jesus speaks into that and frees you to love the people around you. Now, this kind of text is a difficult one because here's the deal. We're talking about love and hate, right? Most people don't think they're hateful, though. Generally, when we hear a sermon about love and hate, what we'll end up doing is we'll very quickly isolate and pinpoint other people in our mind. Maybe you've already done it. You'll look around and be like, so-and-so ain't here. They better be watching that live stream. Don't act like I'm the only one who's done it. See, we normally isolate hate into the thing that other people do or horrible people do. We don't ever really do a very good job of identifying when we're doing it. That's why this text is so hard. See, we, we can think Hitler hated people, And that one mean old neighbor three houses down, they hate everybody. And the opposite side of the political aisle that that I find myself on, they're super hateful, and that group is hateful. But me, no, 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 I don't hate. I, I I don't do that kind of thing. Hear me, please. What if you and the Bible have a different definition of hate, though? We tend to think of hate as this gnashing of teeth, easily visible malice, as if it's the furthest extent of disdain, like it's one step before murder. But the Bible doesn't say that you have to go that far to fall into hatred. And if you don't have to go that far, then it means it's a much more dangerous proposition for us to stay out of it. Hate, darkness, and a lack of love are much, much, much more easy to fall into than we realize. And here's the thing that that I'll just put on myself and you. If you think you don't hate anyone, it's not a matter of if you are uh, ever, it's, it's just when you will. We all will struggle with what the Bible calls hate. Let's flesh this out. What does biblical hate look like? And again, this is talking about the brothers and sisters that you're meant to walk in the light in the beauty of who Jesus is and stir each other towards God and serve each other and serve the city together. This beautiful group that you're putting into, that you're put into through Jesus, what could hate look like in there? There's people around you that you think of their faults all the time but never their good traits. That is hatred. 
There's a person who their name just causes you to highlight all of their annoyances and their weaknesses. If you always think of how a person has let you down, but never how they've been there, all of that is a lack of love and it's hatred biblically. Let's press further. If you avoid believers that you do not relate to, if you stay away from people that you don't feel comfortable to or like or enjoy, biblically to your brother and sister, that's hate. If you hold on to resentment and you just let it sit there and you're fine with it being there and you will not fight to kill it, that's a lack of love and it's hatred biblically. If you assume the worst about someone, if you assume they'll always let you down, if you treat groups of people in the family of God like problems to be solved instead of souls to love, Here's the dangerous one in a pandemic in our self-obsessed society. If you hoard your alone time and you will not be vulnerable, open, help others, or accept their help, biblically that's hatred. If when you know you've done wrong, you refuse to apologize. See, I wonder how many times we take David's words wrongly. David, uh, to you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Right? So we wrong the brothers and sisters around us, and, and then maybe we go, sorry, God, and we ignore the person here. Yes, sin is against God, but we can also spill over into other people. When we refuse to mend relational hate or relational hurt, that's hatred. If you deny a person from getting to know you just because you don't enjoy them very much, if your MO is to run away or cut people out when things get difficult, And those are all signs of hate biblically. Friends, that means large categories that we are quite comfortable with. Avoidance. Resentment. The massive one, gossip. undealt with frustration and annoyance. They're all synonyms for hate biblically. When you're dealing with a church family. I'll press more. If you hear the name of a person and you automatically roll your eyes whether anyone's looking or not, you hate them. If someone's name gets mentioned and you audibly sigh or groan whether anyone can hear you or not, that's hatred. You're like, man, I I don't know if I hate them. They're just annoying to me. Is there any case that you can make that you are showing the love of Jesus to that person when you do that? No, there's not. How often do we let ourselves get there? Each and every time we do, though, we're waiting in the waters of hatred. We're roaming around in the darkness, forgetting that we are in the light, called to light, called to walk in the light with the people who are gifts to us each other. And in that spot, in our minds and in our hearts, we are most certainly destroying fellowship. Again, John's words here are, beloved, if you're holding hatred in your heart, repent. Walk back in the light. 
We believe this, that hate can be low-key and subtle, and even just passive feelings, then we have to realize our world considers hate acceptable and normal, and I would say that even some of the markers of annoyance and frustration and bitterness and resentment, those are actually traits that our world respects. Gathering only with those that we agree with and have commonalities with, or find ourselves at the same life stage as, that's normal in culture, it's considered selfish and hateful in the community of God. Avoiding people that you're frustrated with is par for the course in the world. It's a glaring lack of love in the church. Again, remember, we're called into the light, which is different than the darkness. So to take the culturally accepted patterns of avoidance and resentment and bitterness and, uh, and just cutting people off and things like that that the world does, we're not meant to copy them. You're not supposed to be just not worse than the darkness. You're supposed to be the light which is utterly different than the darkness. We cannot try and, and, and keep walking step in step with the way the world treats each other because we're not in the world anymore. These last three verses, they may seem interesting place there. Like, John, why are you mixing love for believers with love for the world? You're trying to call us to love fellow believers and then call us to not love the things of the world. Like, did you just ADD? Did you get lost? No, this is extremely important and not random. He's saying, if you want to know how to protect your love of others, how to keep yourself in a healthy spot and stay away from being a stumbling block, then we have to keep a close watch uh, on really our love of the things of the world. His thought process so far, uh, without walking regularly in relational connection with Jesus to be reminded of and see his love, Our love will veer off course for other fellow believers. But also, if we find ourselves loving too much, walking too much, and enjoying too much of the things of the world, that's a prime spot also to veer off and not love the other people around you. Creation and enjoying it are not meant to be a bad thing, but John's saying be careful, though, how much you do it. Because if you aren't, the world will begin to choke out and eclipse your love for other believers. This isn't surprising though, right? How often does football cause a guy to miss church? That's a love of the world. You're choosing to love things of the world versus the family. How often does a desire to make more money steal a person's time for community and even their capacity to love? That's a love of the world problem. How often do we watch TV and let that trump our desire to engage with and connect with real people? My brother, it's a pandemic. I can't see real people. How often do we leave a text or call unreturned in order to pursue a hobby? Each one of those are scenarios where our love for the world just gets a little carried away. And and because of that, our love for brothers and sisters takes a backseat and is deprioritized. John speaks very matter-of-factly about that. He just goes, hey, that's a really bad investment. 
We look at time and love uh, in, in the economy of, of what is eternal uh, as means to invest. You say investing all of your energy and your love and your time in the world is not super smart because there's one day that's going to pass away. But our fellowship with God, with Christ, and with each other never will. Invest your time and your love wisely and fight your hate to throw yourself further into the beauty of what is eternal when Jesus bled for. Because I know that it's COVID and it's, it's really tempting to excuse ourselves from loving other people because of the situation that we find ourselves in. Hear this, God doesn't stop being God because we're in a pandemic, and we don't stop being God's people because we're in a pandemic. I know things are hard, but there's still ways to practically love, to work against hatred, to work against indifference, definitely to check our love for the world so that we can love the people around us. Now, my hope for this is pretty simple, that we would hear the call into the light to love each other well, and that the Spirit would do its work. And where necessary, we'd be moved to not just kind of name the ways that we're hateful, but to confront them. Why? So that Christ can be honored and our fellowship can be restored. Can can I just tell you, you and I, we feel right now the weight of some of the, the, the relational tension. What if we all became really serious about getting that to go away? And that doesn't look like moving or not ever seeing someone again. What if we became really serious to break down the tension and walk back in love towards each other? Again, I struggle with this text because we need to have the fog cleared from our eyes. This is not just a demand to be nicer or to not be rude. I don't know about you, but on road trips, my parents were really good at holding the wheel and like swinging in the back seat, right? This is not God yelling, be nice to your brother, and like swinging at us. That's not what he's doing. This text is a spirit-driven call to wake up and see the beauty that you've been given. We can't see it. Beloved sons and daughters, John's just lovingly as a father saying, you have been placed through the victory of Jesus in a new community. One that has the power through Christ to not look like the mess of the world. Do we love the world? The people in it? Yeah. Do we want to be like them? No. By the victory of Jesus, you've been placed into a new community So you don't have to look like the world, act like the world, or hurt each other like the world does. You don't need to judge each other like the world does. You don't need to use each other like the world does or hate each other like the world does. Can you see it? Christ, by his blood, has eliminated our sin and our shame, seated us up in the heavenly places. Why? So you don't have to fight for an identity anymore because whether you make a lot of money or none or have a great job or none or you're married or not or any of these things, you have been seated in heavenly places. There's nothing left earned. And the Holy Spirit has been given 
to help us to not forget that and to help us so that we don't veer off course. So the Holy Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to not be a cessationist, is, is, is to, to let the Spirit be one that you walk with so that you grow in godliness, meekness, gentleness, kindness, love, sacrifice, holiness, gratitude, respect, and hospitality so that we can, through the Holy Spirit, outdo each other in honor. That's the gift that we've been given. The hope is that we would wake up to the reality of it and walk deeper into it. We'll never get there if we keep a hold of our hatred, though. Even if we name it annoyance, it's not what it is. Even if it's culturally acceptable to hate in the ways that the Bibles call us out of, we'll destroy our joy by doing it, by staying in the middle of it. Just the, the hope is, is, so many times in sermons you're trying pragmatically, like you need to do this, you need to do this. You know, if you, you know if you're holding this type of hatred. And you know it needs to be eradicated. But I hope that the beauty of what Jesus has brought us into, that it would just be re-highlighted for us. We're talking uh, about how do we start MCs again where we can see each other more and, and care for each other more. And that's a prime message is this is kind of on the forefront of our mind. But the beauty of this is that we're invited into a community so that we can love well and walk well with each other. So that people can have our back, show us Jesus, walk with us. Community isn't an amenity to, to give in. It's not meant to be a bummer. It's not meant to be a chore. It's meant to be a beautiful blessing. We'll only see the beauty of it if we see Jesus' love and then we've been confronting the way that we're not giving it to each other. Here you can come up. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would help us with this, that we would all grow in love, that we would not be content with believing less than the best out of each other, that we would not be content with low-level frustration that causes us to be stumbling blocks to each other. We'll take communion today in worship. At any time, you're free to take. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Because we need to remember that he broke his body to make us his body. And hatred amongst each other will never let that be. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, I pray in worship as we come and we're able to take, that you would remember the beauty of what Jesus has done. That whether you find yourself as, as young children, as, as fathers in your, your walk, or, or maybe you're just in kind of the, the middle maturity phase, no matter where it is, I pray that you would see the beauty of what Jesus has done for you and call us into. You're forgiven. You're beloved. You are cherished, and you'll never be let go. Man, if we truly believe that at a deeper level, how much would we exhale and love other people well? And I pray the Spirit does work in that. Will you stand with me? God, I pray through this text that you begin to help us. We need you.
We need you to do your work. We need for you to help us see the places that we're holding hate and walking in darkness. We pray that you give us the gift of repentance there. Lord, I pray that you restore the fellowship amongst us. That we begin to look across at other fellow brothers and sisters and begin to remember the blessing that they are, the moments that they have been there, the moments that they have walked with us, that fellowship would be good and life-giving and joy-filled. Lord, would you do it by your Spirit and by your name? We pray that you would. God, I pray that you do your work. Holy Spirit, draw near to us. God, be glorified. We pray even in worship that it not be about us or songs, but it be about your holiness and your glory and drawing near to that. We love you, God. Do your work in us today. Amen.